Today on the Matt Wall Show, the leading LGBT children's author in the world was suspended from Twitter over the weekend. It was an appalling act of homophobia, but there's something even deeper and more important going on, which we'll talk about today. Also, the CDC has finally started admitting some basic truths about the COVID virus just in time for the midterm elections, but you know that's a coincidence, I'm sure. And a teacher stuffs her son in the trunk of her car so that she doesn't give her, so that he doesn't give her COVID. Interesting parenting strategy. Plus, Navy boot camp goes woke, and we must cancel a prominent doctor who posted a dramatic 25-tweet thread about his son's battle with a cold. All of that and more today on The Matt Wall Show. Well, as you all know and have seen, true masculinity is constantly under attack in our culture, and we need core pillars to keep us grounded in true masculinity. One such pillar is steak. And not just any steak, though. You need 100% American steak on your dinner table. Fortunately for you, Good Ranchers is the exclusive meat company of The Daily Wire. They help you get American meat delivered to your door. They've got 100% American steakhouse quality uh, meat, and it's it's all for an affordable price. Over 85% of the grass-fed beef in stores and online is imported from overseas. And uh, that means you're getting less quality. It also means that you're undermining American farms and ranches. And often that causes them to close down, ultimately. Shop Good Ranchers today to support American-made and put the small farm back on top. Support American farms and ranches and get delicious T-bones, gourmet burgers, ribeyes, and many more mouthwatering cuts in the process. I mean, the, the, the big headline for me with this is that this is just really good stuff. I've had uh, I've tried the product myself, and um, it is this is this is one of those easy spots to do because I actually really enjoy it. Not that I don't enjoy the other sponsors. Anyway, visit GoodRanchers.com slash Walsh and use code Walsh at checkout to get $30 off any one of their many boxes. Everything they sell is truly top-notch, and you really have to try it. So visit GoodRanchers.com slash Walsh today to save $30 on your new favorite steak. Start the year with Good Ranchers, American meat delivered. So tragedy struck my family on Friday when I got the news, which came completely out of nowhere, hitting like a bolt of lightning from the clear blue sky that I had been suspended from Twitter. Uh, These are truly the times that try men's souls. I was informed of the suspension mere moments after posting a video of me defeating my wife in a plastic sled race in our front yard. Now, at first I thought that I was being suspended because of that video, perhaps on a bullying charge or something. Either way, you know, that's the kind of indispensable content that the internet was deprived of in my absence. Then I received the email from our Twitter overlords They informed me that the suspension was for two offensive posts that I had recently authored. One said this. Trigger warning. Get ready for this. This is what it says. The greatest female Jeopardy champion of all time is a man. The top female college swimmer is a man. The first female four-star admiral in the public health service is a man. Men have dominated female high school track and the female MMA circuit. The patriarchy wins in the end. The other was a tweet from a few months ago, I think it was a few months ago, and uh, I was responding, I believe, to the news that Demi Lovato had come out as a they-them. She had come out as multiple people, where I said in my trademark diplomatic and gentle style, I am not referring to an individual person as if she is two people. Everyone else can run around sounding like maniacs if they want to, but I will not be participating. No, thank you. Well, I did say no, thank you, so I think I was pretty polite about it. What rules did these two posts violate? Well, the company said that uh, I had run afoul of their policy prohibiting hateful conduct. What is hateful conduct? That's, this is the only explanation they offer for that. They say, you may not promote violence against, threaten, or harass other people on the basis of race, ethnicity, national origin, sexual orientation, gender, gender identity, religious affiliation, age, disability, or serious disease. 
Now, it should be noted that you can still promote violence against them if you just disagree with their opinions, because people do that to me every single day. I mean, every day someone is telling me they're going to kill me or wishing death on my entire family. But that's okay because they just hate me for everything I stand for and believe. And that's totally fine. Hate somebody for their race or gender, on the other hand, well, that is unacceptable. But did I promote violence? I mean, did I make any threats against anybody? I said the patriarchy wins, but that was simply an observation, not a threat. I didn't say the patriarchy will win, you fools. You're all going to pay. That's the kind of thing I might say. But that's not what I, I mean. That's what I hope it will happen. But that's, that's not what I actually said. So where was the threat? Or was I guilty of harassment? Was I harassing the trans Jeopardy contestant by simply observing in a tweet where he was not tagged or even mentioned by name that he's a biological male? Now, if I had to guess, and all I can do is guess because social media companies never deign to explain themselves to plebes like us. But if I had to guess, that's what I would think they probably determined. That I was harassing trans people by making objectively correct statements. And not even, again, making those statements to them, but just in general. In much the same way that I guess that my math teachers in elementary school harassed me by telling me that I was doing long division wrong. You know, the truth is harassment if you don't want to hear it. That seems to be the standard, though, rather unevenly applied, of course. Now, fortunately, I was let out of, uh, of timeout the next day, and I was permitted to continue posting, um, you know, whatever I want. I mean, posting videos of my sled races if I wanted to. But whether I can continue to post scientifically correct information about sex and gender is another matter. I will continue to do it. We'll just see how much more they tolerate before, before they ban me. Now, although my Twitter suspension was obviously a great hardship for me, and I'm still struggling with PTSD from the experience, I'm aware that it's not exactly earth-shattering news for everybody else, especially because this kind of thing happens all the time. The point that has greater implications for a society is not that this or that individual person gets suspended or banned. It's that the most powerful social media platforms on the planet have forbidden us from stating basic objective truths. Now, although we have perhaps grown accustomed to it by now, it is nonetheless mind-numbingly deranged that multi-billion dollar companies have decided that you cannot say biological males are men. Many of the dystopian novelists of the 20th century were able to correctly predict various aspects of our society today, but none of them predicted this. None of them prophesied a future, a near future, where it's considered harassment to observe that an individual with a penis is a man. This goes far beyond the darkest nightmares of Orwell or Huxley. And it, of course, extends beyond social media. There are efforts now to impose these kinds of rules on the entire country from the federal level in the form of, uh, of bills like the Equality Act. School districts have adopted these policies, like in Loudoun County. Major corporations across the spectrum have imposed them on their employees. And we cannot lose sight of just how exceedingly psychotic all of this truly is. Now, of course, I say psychotic in a colloquial sense. Um, the people imposing these rules are not actually crazy. Some of these people that are imposing the rules on behalf of are crazy, but the people coming up with the rules are not crazy. They are acting with intent and with clear and coherent goals in mind. Part of what drives the censorship is that the left's gender ideology is a fragile and vulnerable thing, and they know it. It cannot stand up to the slightest scrutiny. 
It can only be defended if all of the opponents are cleared from the playing field ahead of time. It can only stand up if no wind is allowed to blow. Over at the University of Pennsylvania, biological male swimmer Leah Thomas just won uh, this, this uh, just a few days ago first place in the 200 and 500 yard freestyle races in a meet against females. Now, he was defeated in the 100 freestyle uh, race, however, by Yale's Isaac Hennig, who is also transgender. So a trans person beat another trans person in the female meet. Now, the interesting thing is that Hennig is a female who now identifies as male, which means that in the women's competition, men who call themselves women are allowed to participate, but so are women who call themselves men. It is total indefensible insanity, though a journalist on NBC this weekend tried to defend it anyway. And let's listen to that. So let's talk about it now with Joe Yerkeba from NBC Out, who just published this piece with the latest about Leah. Joe, I'm glad to have you glad to have you here. Talk about what's going on here, right? Um, because Leah does have support from her team, from her school, from her league, if you will. And yet for some of her detractors, that doesn't seem to be enough. Sure, yeah. So there are a few different arguments happening here. You've got an argument about fairness. Uh, there are people who oppose trans women competing in women's sports because they say it's unfair to cisgender women who aren't trans, most of whom don't receive the athletic athletic advantages of higher testosterone levels during puberty. Though then you have folks who say there's very little scientific evidence that shows that those advantages carry over for trans women after transition. So then you've got this argument about fairness and human rights on the other side. And trans advocates say that this question of inclusion is about more than just sports because, you know, we're still seeing these efforts at the state level right. to ban trans people from using the bathrooms of their gender. Uh, so they say this debate is really part of a larger conversation about whether trans people can participate in certain aspects of society at all. Just one minute there, and somehow they managed to pack like a half dozen lies into it. Every word of what you just heard is false. It's not true that Leah Thomas has support from his teammates. They hate the fact that he's there. They by no means are thrilled to have this big, bulky guy intruding in their space. But they'll be punished if they say anything on the record about it. They have talked off the record, but uh, that's all they can do. As for the claim that there's no scientific evidence that biological males have advantages in sports, that would be true if you simply ignore literally all of the evidence because every piece of evidence available confirms over and over and over again that males have an advantage. I mean, every single piece of evidence. There is no evidence on the other side of this. And yet, it's not even our side that needs to produce evidence. If you wish to contradict thousands of years of human knowledge and experience, which you're free to do, it's you who must meet the burden of proof. You must provide evidence that they don't have an advantage, which you have not and never will because you can't. And it's also not true that people are trying to stop transgenders from participating, from participating in society. Nobody has made any such attempt or suggested anything like that. I am not aware of any law or any proposal anywhere at any point that would prohibit trans people from using the bathroom. That would not be a, a sanitary policy for one thing. It also certainly wouldn't be fair. The question is whether trans people should be required to stick with their biological sex in these contexts or if they should get special treatment. So once again, everything you heard there was a lie. Because all they can do is lie. Which is no surprise, given that they are waging a war on truth. And that's what this is about. 
But the lies are so brazen, so empty, so glaringly obvious and false that the truth just cannot be allowed within its proximity at all. The lies would shrivel and die. They cannot endure the slightest challenge. That's why they censor. What other choice do they have? Tell the truth? I mean, well, they obviously can't do that. Now let's get to our five headlines. Um, All right, so we start with this, some uh, sad news, troubling news. Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez announced on Sunday um, that she has tested positive for COVID-19. It's from the Daily Wire reporting now. The announcement comes just a week after the New York representative was caught vacationing in Florida and partying at a drag club with celebrity Billy Porter um, while skipping voting in person at the Capitol in Washington, D.C. because of the ongoing emergency pandemic, she said. And uh, she also wasn't wearing a mask for, for, for much of this. So, But, you know, she went to a super spreader event, maskless, at a drag party, and now she has COVID. I guess, you know, COVID has a crush on AOC. Seriously, COVID, back off. Why are you so obsessed with AOC COVID? It's, it's super creepy, all right? Um, that's all the analysis I have on that. We'll move on to the next thing. From CNN, it says the Supreme Court's conservative majority on Friday appeared ready to reject one of President Biden's most aggressive attempts so far to combat the spread of COVID-19, a vaccine or testing requirement aimed at large businesses. But in a separate challenge, some justices, ju- some justices seemed more open to a vaccine mandate aimed at certain healthcare workers. The court heard arguments for almost four hours as the number of infections is soaring and 40 million adults in the U.S. are still declining to get vaccinated. The three liberal justices on the court expressed clear approval for the administration's rules in both areas. So based on the um, on the arguments anyway, it seems likely that the uh, mandate will get, at least huge swaths of the mandate will get, uh, will be shut down as well it should be. But, you know, I, I didn't listen to all the arguments from, from the clips that I've heard and what I've read. The, the one fact that I think was not, doesn't seem to, be, to have been focused on enough, and to me this is, this is the decisive fact, right? Is because we can put all the civil liberty questions aside, as important as they are. And obviously in a Supreme Court challenge, you, you have to focus on those because that's what this is about. It's about the Constitution. So it's a constitutional challenge. But, you, but in reality, you could really put all that aside and just look at the fact that the vaccines do not prevent transmission of the virus, which the CDC, and we'll play some clips here in just a second, but the CDC is finally admitting that. Even the CDC is saying that at this point, it doesn't prevent transmission. So let's, let's just say in a fantasy world that um, Pfizer and Moderna had come up with a vaccine that does prevent transmission. You know, even then, I would not be in favor of vaccine mandates imposed by the federal government because then we go over to the civil liberty issue. But if there could be any argument, if there could be any argument in favor of these things, th- that argument has to hinge on the vaccine s- stopping the spread of, of, of the virus. Because then you're saying that this is a public health necessity, and so we have to put these other liberty issues on pause or whatever. It's a bad argument. It's a weak argument. But if the if the vaccine does not prevent transmission, there's no argument. 
That is, you know, the other strategy here, and I just I just saw this uh, headline pop up that um, right now the pharmaceutical industry they are uh, working hard on a a vaccine specifically for Omicron, or I'm sorry, I didn't mean to mispronounce it, Omnicorn. So they're working hard on a vaccine for Omnicorn, and they they hope to have that ready, you know, in the next few months. So sort of like in a, in a similar move, I, you know, I'm I'm uh, organizing an effort to supply more lifeboats to the Titanic. You know, that, that's that's the great thing is a, that that's one way maybe where the vaccines will work is if you if you if you start vaccinating everybody against Omnicorn after everyone's gotten it already. And then, you know, so they'll wait till everyone gets it and it peters out on its own and then they give the vaccine. And uh, a few weeks later, they could say, look, no one's getting Omnicorn anymore. It worked. So it, unless you're using a strategy like that, um, these vaccines are not stopping transmission, which means that there is no rational argument for them at all. The argument is gone. Because this is not, you're not protecting public health anymore. You're not stopping anyone from getting it. But the real headline from, from the arguments on Friday was the avalanche of misinformation from the liberal justices. And uh, going back to the CDC, Brett Baer had the CDC director... Wolensky on his show on Sunday and asked her about some of that uh, the misinformation. And we'll start with this because there was a claim made by Sotomayor that 100,000 children are hospitalized with COVID. And um, Wolensky was asked about that. And let's, let's listen. Well, you just heard about the U.S. Supreme Court currently deciding the fate of the president's vaccine mandates. In the questioning, Justice Sonia Sotomayor made this statement. We have over 100,000 children, which we've never had before, in, in serious condition, and uh, many on ventilators. Now, as we can find from Friday, suggests there are fewer than 3,500 current pediatric hospitalizations from COVID-19. Is that true? Yeah, but, you know, here's what I can tell you about our pediatric hospitalizations now. First of all, the vast majority of children who are in the hospital are unvaccinated. And for those children who are not eligible for vaccination, we do know that they are most likely to get sick with COVID if their family members aren't vaccinated. So the most important thing we can do for those children to keep them out of the hospital is to vaccinate them and to vaccinate their family members around them. Understood. But the we number is not 100,000. It's roughly 3,500 in hospitals now. Well, you know, 100,000, 3,500. What's what's the difference? Uh, Later on in the conversation, Walensky was asked whether she feels any responsibility to fact check the Supreme Court because, you know, that's something that allegedly the CDC has been doing, Walensky has been doing. Uh, We we know that that, uh, misinformation supposedly is a big problem. And so when we get misinformation from the nation's highest court, uh, from, a, from a platform with that much prestige, is it necessary to fact check it? And uh, Walensky wasn't so sure about that. From your data, ages 15 to 24, for example, the risk of death is at 0.001%. Um, I, I guess that what I'm getting at in this opening is that the, the Supreme Court is in the process of dealing with this big issue about mandates. And do you feel a responsibility as a CDC director to correct a very big mischaracterization by one of the Supreme Court justices? 
Yeah, I, um, here's what I'll tell you. I'll tell you that right now, 17, you're, if you're unvaccinated, you're 17 times more likely to be in the hospital and 20 times more likely to die than if you're on, than if you're boosted. And so what my responsibility is, is to provide guidance and recommendations to protect the American people. Those recommendations strongly, uh, recommend vaccination for our children above the age of five and boosting for everyone above the age of 18 if they're eligible. Well, you know, we don't we don't need to worry about misinformation when it's coming from that side. Uh, She was also asked at a different point how many of the deaths, because this is now a subject that we're allowed to suddenly talk about. um, How many of the deaths, COVID deaths of the 800 plus thousand, how many of them are deaths from COVID as opposed to with COVID? This was the the unspeakable thing for about two years. You were not allowed to talk about it. That was going to be a, that would be a quick, easy ban from pretty much any social media platform if you had uh, suggested such a thing. And but now we're, we're allowed to talk about it. She was asked during that same interview how many of the deaths are from COVID as opposed to with COVID, and she said, "Well, we got to I'll, I'll look into that, and we'll we'll get that information over to you. You know, we're still we're still putting the numbers together. Yeah, she's still putting the numbers together two years into it." Um, so she didn't want to answer that question on Fox, but the next morning on Good Morning America, this morning, she, uh, admitted another interesting fact about the COVID deaths. Listen. The overwhelming number of deaths, over 75%, occurred in people who had at least four comorbidities. So really these are people who were unwell to begin with. Hmm. Another two years, almost three years into it. First time we've heard that from her. Not the first time we've heard it, but from someone like her. So what, what exactly is going on? I mean, it, 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 we finally have people in the mainstream media uh, talking about the effects that the shutdowns and lockdowns are having on kids and we, how we can't keep doing this. Uh, the, the trade-off that, that's been made and how much it's damaged children. They're finally talking about that. They're talking about the difference between dying from COVID and with it. Um, we're even getting now admissions about the fact that the vaccines do not prevent the spread of the virus. Why is this happening right now? Well, a cynical person, also just a logical person, might look at the fact that we are almost exactly a year into the Biden administration at this point, and cases are surging to record highs. Um, Deaths have gone down. Which is another thing that now the quote-unquote public health authorities and the media, they're also pointing to that, um, which they hadn't done in the past. You know, in the past, it was, well, we're just going to focus on cases, and uh, even if deaths are lagging behind, we're, you know, let's, let's worry about the cases. But cases are surging to record highs a year into the, to the Biden administration. And we're coming up now on midterm elections. And now they're finally admitting some basic truths about the virus because they realized that Biden promised to shut down the virus hasn't happened. It's never going to happen. The people who were stupid enough to vote for him based on that promise and promises like it, they're going to be upset and they're going to look, there's there's going to be a, a price to pay at the polls. So now the media and the Democrat Party, they have, a, they have several months of this cleanup effort that they can do. And the cleanup is going to be um, erasing and reversing everything they've been saying for the last two to three years. 
Now, one other clip I want to play for you because I thought this was interesting. Over on Waters World on Fox, uh, he had an expert on to talk about something that I hadn't heard until I saw this, this clip. But the, the possibility that Omicron, Omnicorn, I keep getting it wrong, I'm sorry, was, uh, was also a lab leak. So we know that the original COVID strain was most likely leaked from a lab. Um, another thing that you weren't allowed to talk about for two years and now suddenly you're allowed to talk about. But uh, Omicron also was potentially a lab leak. Let's listen to that. Research suggests and evidence suggests that they were doing experiments on mice in a lab in South Africa. We don't know which lab. Do we know which lab? Uh, we do. We have we have some information from that. There, there are actually several laboratories, so we don't have that that final bit of information. Uh, I just soon not go there on. on I understand. The location and they were trying to do experiments in order to get ahead of the virus, in order to make sure that a vaccine would help it or doing research. And it escaped because that's what viruses no. do. It, would this have been gain of function research in a South African lab? Yeah, it's effectively is gain of function. If you're trying to teach a virus how to get around human antibodies, it's gaining the function to get around human antibodies. Growing in, in mice, it's gaining the ability to grow in mice. So, yeah, both of those do qualify as gain of function. All right. Well, I guess the good news is this is a pretty weak strain. Uh, it's not a mutation as far as we can tell, as far as the research shows. And, and it's going to wash through and give, the, I guess, hopefully the whole country enough immunity that this thing kind of decelerates and we can turn the page on, on COVID-19. Is that your understanding? Absolutely, yeah. So it, it grows faster than Delta in the in the nose and the in the throat. Grows much slower in the lungs. The consequence is that you know it's very transmissible. The most transmissible virus we've ever seen. Basically, the sneeze heard around the world is enough to to fill a room with it. But it doesn't go deep in your lungs to cause pneumonia. So it's sort of the white hat perfect virus if you could if you had to engineer one. Hmm. If you had to engineer one, which it sounds like this one was. Uh, even though if, if Omnicorn kind of works out because it's a weaker strain taking over for um, the, 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 the deadlier strains. But even so, another virus potentially escaped from a lab. Maybe we should just stop doing this kind of research entirely. It's sort of amazing when you think about all of the, the red tape that governs most of our lives. And especially if you're a business owner. You know, you know this better than anybody else. Um, all of the all of the, the the policies that are put in place, all of the red tape, every 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 aspect of everything that you do, you is has oversight from like three different la layers of government to make sure that everything is safe, nobody gets hurt, and yet you've got these labs across the world that are just they're just letting letting uh, letting viruses escape. And next thing you know, millions of people are dead. And we, we, we barely even talk about it. Of course, there's no, no consequences for anybody. Nobody pays any price for that whatsoever. So, you know, if you want to open up a... If, you're, if your 10-year-old daughter wants to open up a lemonade stand uh, outside your, your front door, it, that might get shut down by the government. In fact, there's been many cases of that happening. Or you're going to get a, the government's going to shut that one down because it's not safe. You know, this is, this is unregulated lemonade that's being let loose into the community. Who knows what could happen? 
Your daughter might be a psychopath lacing it with, with arsenic. So they're going to shut that down right away if you try to have the unsanctioned uh, lemonade stand without all of the licenses and everything that you need, all the permissions. But you want to open up a virus lab somewhere across the world? Eh, that's perfectly fine. Several million people die? Eh, whatever. Here's a, a local news report about a teacher who went to, shall we say, extreme lengths to protect herself from her son when she thought that uh, he might have had COVID. Listen. A local teacher is accused of putting her son in the trunk of her car while she got tested for COVID. According to the district attorney's office, she said he tested positive and she was trying to isolate him. And now we're learning that that woman is a teacher at a local school district. Our Bill Barajas is live now in Northwest Harris County with the latest. Bill? Well, Cypher ISD tells us she is a 41-year-old Sarah Beam, a Cypress Falls High School teacher. According to court uh, records, that teacher went to Pridgen Stadium's testing site on Monday with her son in the trunk of her car because he had tested positive for COVID and she did not want to be exposed. So she has been now charged with endangering a child. Well, when I first heard this uh, story, I know it doesn't, doesn't surprise me. That it's a teacher. I probably could have told you that. Uh, I just, you hear these kinds of stories and it sends chills down my spine when I think about the kids who are in, who are in, in these households governed by these COVID psychopaths. Imagine, I mean, this poor kid, imagine what he's had to endure. I mean, seriously, imagine what he's had to endure for the last two to three years. And it always goes back, like we've been talking about, you know, it goes back to, yeah, this is uh, germophobia and, and all of those kinds of things, super paranoid people. Um, and uh, many of them have just been, their brains have been broken by the media. The media, by the way, you know, condemning this woman, but of course, it's partly their fault. They're, they're partly responsible for this kind of thing. They have intentionally broken everybody's brains, and then, uh, and then this is what happens as a result. So all of that factors into it, but then also there is this, this obsessive self-centeredness from these parents who are not primarily concerned with the safety of their own kids. They're just thinking about themselves. And they will inflict any torture on their children to keep themselves safe. All right, let's move on to this from the Daily Wire. It says, on Wednesday night, Kevin Porter Jr. of the Houston Rockets knocked down a three-pointer with 0.4 seconds left in the game to beat the Washington Wizards 114-111. The game-winning shot should have been the story, but it was the reaction by a member of the Wizards broadcast team that stole the show. On the replay of the shot, Wizards broadcaster Glenn Consort made a comment that immediately set social media on fire. Consort said, what a well-designed play. You got to give, give credit. Kevin Porter Jr., like his dad, pulled that trigger right at the right time. That's what he said in the in the broadcast. And, you know, pulling the trigger is kind of a common uh, phrase that you hear from, from sports broadcasters. Common uh, metaphor. But it says, the problem with the reference to Porter Jr.'s father is that Brian Kevin Porter Sr. spent more than four years in prison for the 1993 shooting death of a 14-year-old girl and then was shot and killed in 2004. According to USA Today, Porter Jr.'s father, Brian Kevin Porter Sr., senior pleaded guilty to first-degree manslaughter in a shooting death of a 14-year-old girl in 1993. He was sentenced to four and a half years in prison. 
Porter Sr. then died in 2004 after being shot in a South Seattle bar. Um, the rocket star was four years old when his father was killed. Now, of course, so he makes this comment, ends up on social media, and uh, because, I mean, you have to keep in mind that of everyone watching the Wizards game, and they heard that comment, 99.999%, if not all of them, well, they wouldn't have any idea about the the criminal history of Kevin Porter Jr.'s father. They would have heard that comment and they would have thought nothing of it. They would have assumed that um, that this basketball player has a father who played in the NBA at one point, and that's what they would have assumed. But, you know, one person on social media does the Google search, makes the connection, um, puts it out there, and uh, next thing you know, this guy is getting blasted by everyone. He's getting going, calling for him to be fired and everything else. LeBron James jumps on the dog pile. Uh, LeBron James tweeted, oh, he thought this was cool, huh? Nah, we ain't going for this. Sorry, but this ain't going to fly. How insensitive can you be to say something like this? Beat it, man. I pray for you, but there's no place in our beautiful game for you. Yeah, I pray for you. I want your life to be ruined, and I'm going to use my immense platform to do it. Um, but, I'm, but I'm praying for you as I ruin your life. Immediately followed, uh, following the call, many wondered whether the concert was referring to former NBA player Kevin Porter, mistakenly believing him to be Porter Jr.'s father. And then it turns out that the uh, broadcaster, that's exactly what happened. He put out a, a statement apologizing where uh, he apologizes and said he was, he was sincerely sorry for it. But then he says, I mistakenly thought Kevin was the son of former Washington player Kevin Porter and was unaware that the words I choose, chose to describe the game-winning shot would be in any way hurtful or insensitive. I've reached out to Kevin to personally apologize and hope to be able to talk with him soon. So, um, again, most people will hear this, not think anything of it. Then when you look into it and you see that, okay, well, this guy's name is Kevin Porter. He's playing for Washington. Uh, years back, there was another guy named Kevin Porter who played for Washington. This broadcaster was aware of that and assumed that there was a family relation, and that's what he was talking about. So this was just a, a mistake, an accident. It happens. And yet, even after he explained this, which is a perfectly logical explanation, and that makes a lot more sense. I mean, you know, we, we, we can't know what was going on in this guy's head and what his motivations were. But either... He mistakenly thought that the old Kevin Porter was the father of this Kevin Porter, and that's the point he was, then that's the reference. Or he was making a joke about an NBA star's father killing someone because he wanted to destroy his own career. You know, either this was a simple mistake or this broadcaster committed an act of random career suicide for no apparent reason. Which explanation makes the most sense? Well, obviously, the simple mistake makes the most sense. And yet, even after he explained and provided a very reasonable explanation for the comment, still people want him fired anyway, including LeBron James, who after his most recent game, he was talking to the media, and he's still offended by this, still very upset, and he still wants this guy punished for it. Let's listen. Uh, I stand by my tweet. I stand by everything I said. So, okay, let's just say, let's just say he thought that was the case. So... We get we get we get uh, scouting reports on players, and I know you guys from the media, y'all get memos and stuff from players and stuff before the game, right? 
y'all get like packets and stuff when y'all come to the game and what's going on in the game's way. And I believe that I'm not a play-by-play person analyst, but I believe that they do their due diligence as well and they get their reports on teams that they're about to play as long as their own team, right? So I, I was actually watching the game live last night when I heard it. Um, and I waited. I didn't do it right away, as you've seen from my tweet. I was watching the game. So if that's the case, if, if, if I am a, a, a play-by-play announcer, right, and I'm covering a team in my local, my local team, in his case, he, he's covering the Wizards. So he remembers the Kevin Porter who used to play for the Bullets, correct? The first thing I would have done, I would have said, oh, Kevin Porter Jr. is coming into town. Let me see if that's his son. Okay, all right. I would have Thanks, LeBron. Shut up, shut up, shut up. Uh, so, yeah, well, th- th- so really this guy, the, bro- the broadcaster, the announcer, he still deserves to be fired. Um, Consor deserves to be fired because... Uh, as LeBron points out, you know, it, it was his job to research the family tree of every single player um, that uh, that is involved in a game that he's calling. And the fact that he didn't do that means that, sorry, sorry, bud, your life's over. Yeah, you should have known better. Before you call a game, you got to look up the rosters and every single person, meaning the starters, but also the bench players, because they might, they might take the court. And uh, if you think that you might be referring to them, you got to look up their entire family tree, going back at least 100 years. And if you didn't do that, well, sorry, you, you, your, your life is over. That's what LeBron is saying. You see here, again, how cancel culture, of, of course, has absolutely nothing to do with holding people accountable. Um, it's also not even really like an overreaction to people who do or say bad things. Because there's a complete disconnect here. This was, it, it, intention does not matter. Motivation doesn't matter. It's especially if you're not in a victim class. So Consor, who I believe is a white guy, as a, as a, as a member of a non-victim class, when he says something, he does not get to decide the intentions of his own words. He doesn't get to determine why he said something or what he meant. His own intentions and motivations are not up to him. They're up to members of the victim class, like LeBron James, who's certainly a victim. He's worth uh, like a billion dollars. He's beloved and world famous and everything, but he's a victim. He's certainly more of a victim than just some local broadcaster for the Wizards, apparently. And so LeBron, as a member of victim class, he gets to decide what your motives and intentions were. And that's what this is about. All right, one other thing before we get to the comment section. I thought this was just great. Uh, Check out this tweet from a guy named John Reese. So he tweeted this. He says, uh, even after a 12-hour night shift at the hospital last night, my wife still has the energy to shovel the driveway. God bless her and all our frontliners. Time to make her some breakfast. And then there's a picture that he uh, took of his his wife down there after a 12-hour shift uh, shoveling the driveway. John still has his pajamas on. You know, he's sipping a cup of coffee, looking out there. So proud of his wife. But this is really outrageous. I got to say, I saw this tweet and I was pretty upset. I mean, what is this guy thinking? He's making her breakfast? She's perfectly capable, obviously. 
I mean, honestly, you're telling me she came home and it's, what is it, uh, 8 o'clock in the morning? John, your wife comes home for the 12-hour shift and then immediately went out to shovel the driveway and didn't make you breakfast? Does she want you to starve to death? It's 8 o'clock in the morning. She had breakfast, breakfast already. How selfish is this woman? I just hope she finished the laundry before she uh, went to bed after that because those clothes won't fold themselves, ladies. Now let's get to the comment section. Daily cancellations are the law. Uh, Ilberto says next, next Matt needs to film the podcast in a parking lot where he can yell at people not returning their carts in between thoughts. That's not a bad idea, but there actually is already, um, in a, there's, it's not really a show, but there's an account, at least on Twitter called cart narcs. And uh, I think they're on YouTube as well. Cart narcs. And this is, this is what they, this is what they do. This is the service that they provide. They patrol parking lots. And when they find someone not returning cart, they go and uh, yell at that person and shame them publicly. But uh, needless to say, it's, it's heroic. And uh, so that, that service is already being provided. But otherwise, maybe I would think about doing that. Warfan says, I honestly don't care about January 6th, where politicians felt unsafe for a few hours. Compared to my city of Atlanta being destroyed by thousands of rioters, it was like something out of a movie with police cars torched and flipped over and businesses completely destroyed. Not big stores either. Local shops that still have not reopened and probably never will. Yeah, this is this is the inversion where we're supposed to feel uh, great sympathy for politicians who had an unpleasant afternoon, but nothing for average citizens who watched their neighborhoods burn to the ground. Um, David says... I love how the other Daily Wire hosts get a quality upgrade, and Matt says, no thanks, I'll go back to my car. I hope you enjoyed that, though. Um, that was our one trip down memory lane, but that's that era is officially over, so I'm not, I'm not doing that again. I got, by, by the end of the second show of doing that, when it's 18 degrees outside, and I'm just freezing my ass off out there doing my podcast in my car, and I'm thinking, you know, what am I, what am I doing with my life right now? What, what was the point of this exactly? So I hope it was worth it. Never happening again, I can tell you. Um, Alex says, is anybody in the Daily Wire going to talk about the Ted Cruz situation? Or, or are we also going to play the liberal media role and ignore when convenient? Is Tucker the only journalist holding him accountable? Um, I'm not avoiding talking about it. Um, it's also sometimes when there's an issue that's that has already been discussed ad nauseum. I'm not sure if I have much worthwhile to add to the conversation. But yeah, Ted Cruz uh, in Congress last week, I'm sure you heard, and then he went on Tucker the next day to talk about it, but he referred to um, January 6th as a terrorist attack. And he sensed, he went on he went on Tucker's show to talk about it, which I think was, you know, in hindsight, pretty clearly a mistake to do that. But he has since backed away from that and said that he was being sloppy in his wording. Um, yeah, I... I totally disagree that it was a terrorist attack. I don't think that's, it was, it was a riot. That's what it was. Um, it also wasn't simply a protest. So we can't be like the leftists in, in, in doing that, where we're going to look at a riot and say, oh, it's just a protest. That's clearly a riot. I mean, there, there were plenty of people there who did not take part in a riot. And it began as not a riot, but it did devolve into that. And there's no, no doubt about it. So that's what it was. That's, that's everything that it was. It was a riot. 
And as we have talked about at great length, it was um, not nearly as violent, deadly, dangerous, harmful as the BLM riots. But that's what it was. And that's what we should call it. It was not a terrorist attack. It was not an insurrection. So I disagree with Ted Cruz there. I think he was wrong. He shouldn't have said that. He's backed away from it, which is good. Um, you know that I'm not afraid to, to hold politicians on our side and the Republic. If, if we can even say the Republican Party is our side, I'm not afraid to hold them accountable to criticize them. In fact, I not only am I not afraid to do it, I, I quite enjoy it. Any opportunity to criticize a politician, I'll, I'll uh, I will take advantage of. But I also think, you know, th- there are very few Republicans that are any good at all. Very few that we can trust, very few that we can rely on, very few solid conservatives in the Senate or in the House or on the on the political scene at all. We only have a few. Ted Cruz is one of the few. And so we have to ask ourselves, he makes one mistake. He says one thing that's wrong. Are we just going to toss him overboard completely and say we're done with you forever because of that? It seems like there are plenty of people on the right who are taking that approach. I just don't. To me, that seems kind of penny wise and pound foolish. I'm not, sure, I'm not sure I agree with that as a long-term strategy. Because he said this one thing that I certainly disagree with and was wrong. Does that mean that he'll, he never he, he has nothing else to offer us? We should want to get rid of him and put someone else in there? Come re-election? I, I don't see it that way. All right. Um Jess says, I told my husband I inducted our daughter into the SBG, and he asked what that was, and I told him the first rule of the SBG, he now thinks I'm on drugs. Well, then that means that you are a true member of the Sweet Baby Gang. You handled that very well. I applaud you for that. Um, And uh, let's see what else. Aaron says, Matt, you have scarred me. In the middle of your show, you did a segment on a woman who sells her farts. I was so shocked and disgusted that there'd actually be a market for that kind of thing. As I recovered from the shock, I then focused my attention, expecting to hear your commentary, and most importantly, your reasoning for why you'd fill a segment slot with that. You then made some fart jokes and moved on. I couldn't believe you would implant such a thing in, in my brain for the sake of a few subpar dad jokes. Thanks for that. I'm now thoroughly scarred. Really? Well, I, I got to say, I, I don't know if you're a true member of the Sweet Baby Gang. You might be banned from the show for this. You didn't, you didn't see that coming from a mile away? You didn't, uh, shall we say, sniff that one out? What else am I going to do with a story like that? Of course, all I can do is just make fart puns. You're banned from the show. Well, when everybody else is kneeling, some men have the courage to stand alone. One of those men is NBA star Jonathan Isaac, who despite facing heavy criticism from the media for his views on social issues and vaccines over the past few years, still stood strong, which is why I'm extremely excited to announce that he's dedicated decided rather to write a book with the Daily Wire called Why I Stand. Jonathan's book will be about the rise of his basketball career, his journey into faith, and his strength to stand alone in the face of immense pressure. Check out the teaser. The Orlando Magic's 23-year-old starting forward is deeply religious and proudly unvaccinated. On Friday, Isaac got attention for choosing not to kneel in unison with his teammates or to wear a Black Lives Matter shirt. My name is Jonathan Isaac. I play for the Orlando Magic. And I'm writing a book with The Daily Wire. Courage does not mean the absence of fear. 
And in today's day, there are so many things that you can be afraid of facing because of believing what you believe or deciding to stand for what you believe in. And I believe this book gives you a blueprint of my story of how Christ has made the difference in my life. From a young kid who struggled with fear, anxiety, uh, self-insecurity, to a man willing to stand for what he believes in. Jonathan's book will be one of the first under the Daily Wire's new publishing arm. Not the very first. That was Johnny the Walrus. Uh, but one of the first under our publishing arm, DW Books. And we couldn't be happier to have him on board. The book is available for pre-order now at Amazon. So reserve your copy today. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. So today we cancel alleged COVID expert Dr. Bob Wachter. Uh, I first became aware of Bob and his plight from a San Francisco Chronicle article that someone shared on Twitter. It said, the headline was, Medicine Meets Emotion. COVID expert shares what happened when his son tested positive. The article tells us, the, re the retweets, likes, and comments lit up for hours Saturday after a well-known San Francisco COVID expert posted an extraordinary story on Twitter. What followed in 25 tweets revealed a kind of wrestling match within Wachter. An internal contest between the data-savvy physician who knew that a young triple-vaccinated person would probably weather COVID just fine and the loving father who felt the pandemic's pain up close perhaps for the first time. Wow, it sounds pretty harrowing. Now, at this point, um, let's just jump over to the thread itself. It is, as mentioned, 25 tweets long. I, I have literally written books shorter than that. Johnny the Walrus, available at johnnythewalrus.com. By Twitter standards, 25 tweets is like war and peace. This is what it would, would have been like if, if Twitter existed in the 19th century and Russian novelists were on the platform. But let's see if the story Dr. Bob tells is worth the pages it takes to tell it. He begins, I've been tweeting about COVID for nearly two years, but this week it became personal when my 28-year-old younger son got it. With his permission, I'll describe his experience and how I approached the situation given the realities of life and the rapidly changing evidence. My son, who lives in San Francisco, is generally healthy but overweight, placing him in a moderately high-risk group. He's been quite careful since March 2020, has received three Modernas. He used to wear a two-ply cloth mask since Ami. He's switching to a KN95 with my encouragement. Let's pause there for a second. So his son had three shots and wears an N95 mask, and he still got COVID. There would seem to be a lesson there. But as usual, this COVID expert isn't perceptive or honest enough to learn it. Instead, he rambles on and on about his son's diagnosis, throwing in dramatic details, such as how he called his son a day after he first started feeling sick, didn't receive an answer. So he went to his apartment, let himself in with the key that he apparently has, and found him asleep. Now, already we, we get the impression that he treats his 28-year-old son like it's his 8-year-old son. Then he tells us that uh, he gave his son a COVID test. Quote, the 15-minute wait, and then dot, 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 the pink line. He was positive. Like millions of other young people, my son had COVID. I felt a strange guilt, not entirely rational, but real, for not having protected him. Protected him? Dude, he's 28. What might you have done to stop your 28-year-old from getting a virus that everyone in the world is getting? I mean, I suppose you could have kept him contained in a large glass box in your home, like some kind of gerbil. Maybe give him a giant wheel to run on for recreation. He is overweight, after all. But short of that, there's literally nothing you could have done or should have attempted to do. Your son is one in a line of millions who did everything right, quote-unquote, in order to escape the fate of everyone else, only to share in it anyway. Again, that should be the lesson. 
But you have to be both smart and humble enough to see it. And Dr. Bob is neither of those things, apparently. But maybe I'm giving the good doctor a hard time unfairly. I mean, we haven't found out if his kid fared, how his kid fared with the illness yet. Maybe he was severely or even deathly sick, which would explain why Dr. Bob is being so frantic and dramatic about the whole thing. Reading on. He called in sick to work, set himself up for at least five days of strict isolation, and I set out to figure out his prognosis and if treatment was merited. Wait, pause again. Why are you doing all of this for your grown-ass son? Can't he call the doctor himself? I got COVID a few weeks ago. My dad didn't come busting into my house early in the morning to make sure I was still alive. Nor did he call the doctor for me. I guess he respects me as a man and knows I can do it myself, or, or he hates me. You know, those are the two options. Maybe both. Continuing, after several more tweets talking about all the treatment options and blah, blah, he tells us, quote, I called his doctor, because, of course, he's, he's calling his son's doctor for him. I, I wonder if his, do- his son still goes to a pediatrician. I'm guessing he does. I called his doctor, who noted that the pills have benefit, the COVID pills, the, the, I think it's the Pfizer COVID pills, have benefit when used before day five. I'd err on not treating, he said wisely, but might consider if things worsen in the next couple of days. It's now day four. Pulse oximeter is fine. Heart rate has slowed. He's a bit less fluish, but his throat still hurts like hell. When five days are up, we'll do another rapid if I can find one. If negative, he'll leave isolation and wear a KN95. Okay, that answers that question. His son had flu symptoms for a few days. He was never seriously ill. And now he's mostly fine, but he has a sore throat. The end. Well, not the end of the threat. He goes on for like five more paragraphs, but that's the whole story. So to summarize, his 28-year-old son had a cold. Now he's fine. Somehow his dad found a way to turn it into like the epic of Gilgamesh. Perhaps I'm jealous of his creativity. My whole family got COVID, including all my kids, and I couldn't get more than about 90 seconds of content out of it on this show. And I call myself a content creator. I'm a disgrace to my profession. I should also tell you, by the way, that when my kids got COVID, I didn't have any like internal crisis. I, did, I didn't feel guilty. I didn't, um, I didn't freak out, you know, at all. I said, oh, well, I got COVID. It was going to happen eventually. Or maybe, you know, Dr. Bob is the one who should feel embarrassed, though he's not alone. Social media is full of these kinds of lengthy confessionals. Whenever somebody in the public eye gets COVID or their family gets it, they feel the need to narrate the whole experience at length in exorbitant detail, even if nothing significant ever actually happened. So we see here that, that narcissism is partly what drives the COVID panic. First, there's the narcissism of actually believing that you and your loved ones somehow will never contract this virus that billions have already contracted. These people feel shocked when COVID finally knocks on their door because they had assumed that COVID would pass over them like the angel of death if they performed the necessary rituals and smeared the right kind of blood on their doors. Everybody else can get it, they think, but, but I should not get it. And therefore, when I do get it, it's a big deal. Yes, a billion people already had this experience, but none of those people are me. My experience is profound because it's my experience. These are the kinds of people who go to a famous tourist spot that 100 million people have already visited before them and take 1,000 pictures and then force you to look at them. Hey, look at these pictures I took of the Grand Canyon. Why? You think I've never seen a picture of the Grand Canyon? Your Grand Canyon trip may be significant to you, but to the rest of us, there's nothing significant about the fact that you visited one of the most famous tourist destinations in the world. So, kind of a similar situation here. But there's something else going on as well. Most of us live lives of previously unimaginable comfort and ease and luxury. We simply don't have very many truly harrowing experiences. Most of us don't. 
We don't suffer very much because every aspect of modern life is obsessively focused on preventing suffering for better or worse. But we've discovered that, that actually humans need to suffer a little bit. It's hard to see the purpose in life if everything goes your way all the time. It's hard to know where to go if every obstacle you encounter just magically moves out of the way and clears the path for you. Sometimes you need to run into something solid, something that will push back a little bit. A life of relentless comfort gets sort of boring after a while. It's exhausting in its own way, really. Maybe not exhausting physically, but spiritually, intellectually. All of this to say that the people afflicted by this much comfort tend sometimes to latch on to the little bits of suffering they do experience. They cling to those experiences. They walk over flat and easy terrain for years on end and then encounter one little speed bump. And to them, it's as if they climbed Everest and they got to tell everybody about it. I think that's at least part of the story here. Part of why some people are turning their cold symptoms into an epic saga. Of course, many people really have suffered immensely from COVID. Many people have actually died, but most have not. Most had experiences much like Dr. Bob and his son. And we in that category should simply be grateful. Yet more suffering we've been spared. Isn't that good enough? Apparently not. And that's why Dr. Bob is today, along with his son, I'm afraid to say, He's a collateral damage. Canceled. And we'll leave it there for today. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Godspeed. Well, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review. Also, tell your friends to subscribe as well. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. We're there. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, Michael Knowles Show, The Andrew Clavin Show. Thanks for listening. The Matt Wall Show is produced by Sean Hampton, executive producer Jeremy Boring. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. Our technical director is Austin Stevens. Production manager, Pavel Vodowski. The show is edited by Robbie Dantzler. Our audio is mixed by Mike Coromina. Hair and makeup is done by Cherokee Hart. And our production coordinator is McKenna Waters. The Matt Wall Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2022. A new study shows vaccines can, in fact, change women's menstrual cycles. Just as Sonia Sotomayor spreads COVID misinformation during oral arguments over the vaccine mandates, and Yale's transgender swimmer beat Penn's transgender swimmer during a women's swimming competition. Check it out on The Michael Knowles Show. Hold up. 